Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey listeners, welcome back to the Oxygen Starved podcast, where we bring you your adventure books and conversation from 11,000 feet here in the beautiful Eastern Sierra. I'm Christopher. I'm Stacy. And as always, we're joined by our producer, Doug. Hey, Doug. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Doug. It's a beautiful day. Isn't it a beautiful day? We were yeah. we each converged on the studio this morning through a fresh falling of snow. Yeah, fresh powder for fresh. the long weekend. What Perfect. great timing. Right. Yeah. We're this episode's coming out the beginning of February. We're recording this segment just a little bit early. Yeah. Um and Boy, it just kind of brightens your day. It, coming it in is. Today. It's so it's so fun to come in after a, a, the storm is over and right. the roads are okay to drive on. <laughs> not so much fun driving through it. Nah, not um, so much fun. But, but, but afterwards, it's fun, and I'm glad that it's clear for people who are coming up to visit the area this this weekend. Yes, I, it'll be a big weekend. It will I think. be. But you yeah. know, it's been a big week. Yes, right. Busy week, we especially a, at up at Mammoth Mountain. Yeah, which yeah. was our adventure. So yeah. you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So this is the week that the Disabled Sports Eastern Sierra group, which we interviewed their fearless leader, Executive Director Kathy Copeland, a few months ago. Yeah, you can go back and find such, that podcast. Such an awesome interview. She's yeah. An awesome woman. Absolutely. Um, so this is the week that Disabled Sports had their Operation Mountain Freedom Week, which is a week that invites military athletes and wounded warriors to come on up here mm-hmm. and participate in adaptive snow sports, skiing, alpine skiing, Nordic skiing, all different tubing, all different kinds of things. Snowboarding, I heard. Yep, snowboarding. And they get lessons and they get food for... Mammoth Mountain does an amazing job to support this event and gives the um, athletes free food and lift tickets. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the disabled sports volunteers are the the teachers, the instructors Mm -hmm. for these um, wounded warriors and military athletes. And Mm -hmm. it's just a great week. And it culminates in the luncheon that we were able to go to yesterday. Up at the mountain. Yeah, it was beautiful. At the main lodge. Yeah, it was was really beautiful. And one of the things I I just find phenomenal about this, uh, you know, uh, Kathy did talk a little bit about it in her interview many months Mm -hmm. ago, but there is just so much opportunity for partaking of skiing and snowboarding and and Nordic skiing and what have you with adaptive equipment these days. Um, And these these folks were really into it and had a really great week for doing it. Yeah, it was a, it was a perfect week, and the snow didn't even start until after the event yesterday was right. over. So I think everybody got a really good week of skiing and boarding and playing in the snow that was here yeah. <laughs> already. So what it was, was really fun? So um, we were invited to the luncheon they had yesterday, Correct. and what 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 was that? So it was. The celebration of the week, a way to not only thank, another way to thank the um, participants for being there, but to celebrate them and the experience that they had had. Um, the, the luncheon was 
emceed, if you will, by Gary Myers, who's the former chief administrative officer of Mammoth Hospital. Mm-hmm. He did a great job, mm-hmm. a little different from his usual responsibilities, <laughs> but Gary did a great job. Um, Kathy Copeland made a short speech and presented an award to yeah. a, a patron of disabled sports. Um, and then the keynote speaker was uh, General Ed, Major General Edward Banta from Washington, D.C., who came right. all the way out here for this event, which was really impressive. That's very special. Yeah, there were a lot of military kind of higher-ups. Um, yeah. Colonel Hutchinson that we interviewed a couple weeks ago was there, so we got to see him. That yeah. was fun. From and, the Mountain Warfare Training yep, Center up, yep, up near up Bridgeport. In Pickle Meadows, mm-hmm. yeah. And, yeah, so we got to see a lot of... Uh, military folks and, and it was hang out super and eat with fun. them and, yeah. and meet a few as we were eating at the different tables. Yeah. We had some great conversations with the with the folks who yeah, were sitting at our table. Heard about their experience during the week and yeah. yeah, it was it was I've never gotten to go to the luncheon before. I right. full disclosure, I'm a board member for uh, disabled sports Eastern Sierra. Um and because of scheduling or whatever, I've never been able to attend this event. So this is my first time going and it was, it was super fun and super inspirational. And the speech that General Banta gave, um, it did, it brought me to tears. Yeah. <laughs> Had to kind of, you know, blink a lot. So. <laughs> <laughs> About what servicemen and women go through and yeah. the sacrifices that they make and then how they over can overcome yes. them through... Yeah with the help of organizations like Wounded Warriors mm-hmm. and Disabled Sports Eastern yeah. Sierra. And and what impressed me is um, that this has been going on for so long, well over a decade. Right, about 13 years. Yeah. Yeah, they've been doing this. And, and um, it's not just local Wounded Warriors. No. They come from all over the country. Correct. So that was the, the gentleman that received the award that Kathy presented. Mm-hmm. He He... The reason why he received the award is because he's been responsible for helping to fly many of these athletes mm-hmm. and wounded warriors to this event every year. And he's been instrumental in helping with that. Um, but yeah, they, they come from all over the country. They said Puerto Rico, uh, of course, Southern California, Northern California, all over Pennsylvania, Florida, Florida. Yeah. All over. So, um, yeah, the, the kid, I want to call them kids because they're they're so young. The um, the military athletes that were at our table, um, they they really had a great time. Some yeah. were snowboarders, some were skiers, and they had different levels of ability. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting to hear their stories and yeah. And then we had one of the volunteers who taught the some mm-hmm. of the groups at our table also. And it was fun to hear his perspective right. on it also. So it's just fun. It it's a fun week for everyone. It sounds like super fun. Yeah. <laughs> they had a great time. So, well, I encourage our listeners, especially our local listeners to pay attention. This happens every year. Yep. So next year around this time, this week will happen again and, right. and disabled sports and promotes it. Yep. So you can kind of support and definitely and, we'll put links to, yeah. um, disabled sports, of course, on our, our website, in our show notes and um, and to Operation Mountain Freedom as well. So, awesome. and listeners, if you have any questions or comments about it, please um, give us a shout out on yeah. our Facebook or Instagram or website. Website. So, thanks.
Thank you. You are dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. Hey, Stace, can I read you something? Please. Okay. So I'm going to read you something. Uh, It's got a title. It's really short. The title is called, I Honor You and Our Love, But I Also Lost Track of Time at a Bar with My Coworkers. (laughs) Sounds great. In France, Saint-Cassette was once synchrosanct, a euphemism for a rendezvous for the thing that men and women do. But we are not in France. We are here in Montclair, New Jersey. And it is well past seven, and I promise to be home at six. <laughs> and yes, that booze on my breath. The, the guys and I had one. Fine, three drinks after work. <laughs> and apparently, I have forgotten the milk, and the bread, and the pasta, and the pull-ups, and the allergy medicine. <laughs> Why are you dressed up? Oh, wait, today is Valentine's Day? <laughs> That sounds like Valentine's Day in my house. (laughs) (laughs) So I read you a poem. Thank you. That was who's the who's the poet? The poet is John Kenny. He is a writer for the New Yorker and a novelist, kind of a humorist. Okay, he's won the Thurber Award. You know, just kind of like not dad humor, but. You know, you know me, I like yeah. humorous writing. And uh, this is from a collection called Love Poems for Married People. I love it. And we thought, since this is the episode that will be out when Valentine's Day yes. is coming. It's very appropriate. It's very appropriate. And we would talk a little bit about poetry. Yes. Diving into, for me, very uncharted territory. <laughs> well, um, this book, you know, before I leave it, you know, uh, John Kenny, again, he's a humorist. He's not like a major American poet. I, I don't think he's in danger of being nominated to be the poet laureate of the United States any day soon. <laughs> but I first heard about it on NPR a year ago when he had pulled this collection together and it was really popular. And he has since put out love poems for people with children, love, oh, love poems it. for people with anxiety. Um, yeah. Are they and, all of a humorous nature? They are. Okay. And, um, you know, it's great. They are for married people. Most of them are kind of PG 13. So I'm yeah. not reading some of the funnier ones, Okay, but they really are humorous and, and fun. And what I really like is that the epigraph he, puts at the beginning of the book is a quote by Umberto Eco. All poets write bad poetry. Bad poets publish them. Good poets burn them. (laughs) And that leads off the book. So, um, yeah, Love Poems for Married People by John Kenny. It's still out and then published. You can find it at the Bookie Join or Spellbinder or wherever. But, yeah, we wanted to talk about poetry, right? Yeah, we don't, you know, before the we started recording, we were talking about how in school we were both taught about poetry, right. but we were not taught to enjoy right. poetry. And it's kind of a, it's, I don't know that it's becoming a, a lost art necessarily because there's still lots of people writing it. I oh, just yeah. don't know how aware the younger generations are of it, of what's out there. Well, you know, I was thinking about this on the drive up this morning on our slow, bright, beautiful, snowy drive, because going slow, you have a lot of time for thinking. You do. (laughs) Um, 
you know, again, we were talking about how there were generations where part of your education was learning to memorize poems by Tennyson and whoever else. Um, And there are still people out there who, Mm -hmm. at the drop of a hat, can recite poems that they had to memorize as students, young students. And today, where are the students and what is the poetry that's being taught? And and perhaps it's more appropriately being taught in a different way rather than just rote memorization. Exactly. Yes. Because there are all these, you know, coffee house poetry slams Mm -hmm. and teen poem poetry. Yeah. Poetry out loud is a, is a huge uh, thing that's happening in our high schools. And I think that's kind of the way that kids are engaging with poetry. And I think there are some, gosh, I might get pushed back <laughs> on this, but I, I think there are probably some rap artists that would argue their genre of music is a poetry of sorts. Well, having lived in New York and in Queens, the, the birthplace of mm-hmm. rap queens in the yeah. Bronx, I would argue that most rap is poetry. Um, and I would agree with that. Um, and some of the most creative poetry out there and one that's a format that inspires other young mm-hmm. people to get involved with language and in the power of it. So I think what we decided when we, when we were putting together this topic to talk about is like, you know, we could give a, a poetry one oh one course or we could just chat about some poets and poetry that we like. Just a yes. few examples. Some poets and some genres of poetry. Right. Exactly. So I'll continue and then mm-hmm. throw it over to you. Yep. And we were chatting earlier. One of the things that got me back into paying attention to poetry as an adult was the former poet laureate, Robert Pinsky, mm-hmm. who may be a familiar name to many people, especially if you watched PBS, you know, in the last decade or two, he used to be on quite a few. He was poet laureate for two or three years, I think. Um, and a really well-known poet. And I would just watch this guy on the, the PBS news hour mm-hmm. or wherever. And he just seems such a normal guy, you yeah. know, just really down to earth and what have you. And I was like, wow, that's not what I would have expected. Maybe I should check out some of his work. <laughs> mm-hmm. And around that time he had translated, um, Dante's Inferno, which for those of you who may have heard about it, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a historical mm-hmm. uh, work from the early Italian Renaissance written by Dante where Virgil and Dante tour the nine circles of hell. Um, which, yeah, just makes you want to just rush out and reach it. Sure. Read it, right? Absolutely. It's really <laughs> uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Robert Pinsky made an attempt, I think a very successful attempt, to translate it into uh, modern English and in an approachable English, yet staying true to the format and the stanzas mm-hmm. and the cantos, which is what they're called in the Inferno. And I read it. I read the whole thing. And it was just, to me, it was like, it was history because right. of the age of the document. And, you know, parts of it are actually quite funny. Mm-hmm. Um, Dante pulls no punches and actually throws people that were contemporaneous to him. He places them in hell and gives them torments, um, <laughs> which kind of makes it relatable. Sure. Um, but you know, it was just, it, I read that and thought, oh, wow, I really can read. You can relate to relate it. Relate to mm-hmm. serious poetry. And then the other kind of thing that happened more recently is we came from New York and while we were living there, we went over and visited this place called Steepletop, which was the home of the great 20th century poet, Edna St. Vincent Millay, who... Is pretty famous 
yeah. female poet. Yeah. And I knew next to nothing about her. Mm-hmm. You know, I just thought it was, I mean, it's a very stuffy sounding name. And yeah. we went over to visit this house museum and I was expecting something big and stuffy. And what it was was this little blueberry farm in the country with a small farmhouse with all of her original stuff in it. And what we learned by visiting is that you know, she was a pro, you know, early feminist, right. early 20th century. She was part of that generation that came of age just after World War One. Mm-hmm. So really rebellious against right. convention. Yep. She had, you know, multiple lovers of various ilks and what mm-hmm. have you. And she was a real kind of rebel, rebellious She was out writer. there for her time. Yeah. She yeah. was part of that early Greenwich Village, New York set and what have you. And uh, was really popular in the 20s and early 30s and then kind of died off and became controversial and ended up dying young um, in 1950. But that was like, again, another shot in the arm. Like we came out with three volumes of her poetry from that visit and have been reading through them. You and, know. and her poetry is pretty accessible, if I remember, because I know I have read some of yeah. her work. And if I can understand it and relate <laughs> to it... Probably most people can. Yeah, and I bet most people would. When she was young, a lot of her poetry was actually kind of criticized and or celebrated for being kind of free and easy, kind of like an early Dorothy Parker, like, you know. Was she a suffragette, do you think? I think she was on that side of the movement. I don't know Mm -hmm. if she identified as a suffragette. Um, But yeah, she definitely wrote about sex and, you know, having fun and drinking and jazz and all that kind of stuff back when that was in its heyday. So yeah, you know, again, she's not a stuffy writer. Um, and so, yeah, since then, you know, we've been a little more open to talking about poetry. So I brought, um, a couple more that I wanted to talk about briefly before tossing it over to you. A poet who is contemporary to us, who's living now happens to be the poet laureate of Fresno, California is a woman by the name of Marisol Baca. And she is actually coming to visit the Colville Library in June as part of the Rural Library Tours, which is supported by the California Center for the Book and Poets and Writers Magazine. So exciting. It is exciting. Like, she's a real honest-to-goodness poet. Right. (laughs) And she teaches. She's an English teacher at Fresno State College. Um, And she's won an award for her work. The work that she's was sent to us of hers before her visit is a collection called Tremor. And, um, yeah, she's just, she's a young, she's Latina, Mexican, um, and just write some interesting stuff. I'm going to read just a little bit of one of her poems that she won the Robert Chasen poetry award for. It's called Revelato, which is, uh, translated into English as revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's mm-hmm. actually got structure to it and it's kind of free form in a way. So, um, I'll just go part the way through it. And then, you know, if you want to hear the whole thing, come to the Colville library in early June. So Revelato, she starts it with, um, a couple of quotes. Impossible work, really, like placing pebbles exactly where they are already. The steadiness it takes, and to what end, it's so easy to forget again. That's K. Ryan poetry. And then there's a stanza by Dante, but it's in the original Italian. I'm not going to read it. Um, And then the poem goes on. We have made it past the mountains to our home and have forgotten where that is. God gives us monoliths to hide behind. I ask God to help me remember. God said, 
Remember the old house on Sarah Lane? Cherry trees slicing your cheek as you ran past. Remember how it had pebble picked up? Pebble marked with brown as cocoa striations around its belly. Pebble picked a hole in my... Oh, forgot to place the avocado tray on the Formica kitchen table. It's ugly. It gets me to remember something I can't articulate. It's a problem with the myelin, my dad says. Somewhere it forgets to send the message. It petrifies, I say. Stones thrown behind our heads, where they go, what they find on the other side. Are we made of this action? In Quechua, we have a name for that. It's in my dreams, almost. Almost a said thing. Almost. 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 So the poem goes on from there, and this collection is really good. She writes around about pretty deep stuff, Mm -hmm. um, and I really can't wait to get here um, and have her lead a writing workshop and kind of see where she comes from. But, you know, she's still kind of young, too, so I'm really anxious to see what she's going to continue to publish. It's interesting. I mean, it's so, um, to me, it sounds so unstructured. Right. You know, when you just hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, that's great. I'm excited for her to come. <laughs> I am too. So, uh, and she's in good company as a contemporary poet. Um, so I will talk about one more, yes. if you don't mind. And that's Joy Harjo. She is the newest poet laureate for the United States. Um, she is the first Native American poet is laureate. She, is she the first female poet laureate? No, I think there's been okay. quite a few females. Um, but the first Native American. The first That's Native awesome. American. And she really brings that perspective and that need to mm-hmm. her work. She's a writer of other formats and a musician as well. Um, but, you know, she sees it as part of her role or as part of, you know, mission probably isn't the right word. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of a real drive mm-hmm. to um, bring out the Native American voice in what she calls the American Book of Poetry. She said when she started writing poetry, there were no Native names in that book, and there really should have been many. Mm-hmm. And now there are even more. Her latest collection is called The American Sunrise. And we have it in the library, or nice. you can get it from your bookstore. It uh, made quite a splash. She's had quite a bit out, but this one, um, partially because probably because it came out in the year she was named poet laureate, is getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. She's been interviewed by Oprah. She's all over the place. I'll I'll put a link of a YouTube mm-hmm. video of her reading the poem "American Sunrise" Perfect. on the on the website, so you can see her. But. Um, What I really like about her approach to this is really what she believes poetry can do. So I'm going to read Mm -hmm. a little bit about an excerpt of an interview that she gave to poets.org. She's asked the question, why does poetry matter? And part of what she says is, poetry is the art that is closest to music, standing between music and narrative orality. Poetry is a tool for disruption and creation and is necessary for generations of humans to know who they are and who they are becoming in the wave map of history. Without poetry, we lose our way. And part of what draws me to that quote is that she really talks about poet ancestors Mm -hmm. so that she really sees kind of a linear thing. Poets are building upon a tradition that has existed for as long as humanity has existed. And so poetry helps also shape 
the way forward. And tell the stories of the past, right? Yeah. So again, I'm really anxious to see what she does as Poet Laureate. You know, other Poet Laureates have done interesting projects Mm -hmm. to help raise attention, focus attention on poetry and its power. And so, um, yeah, really interesting to see where she goes with this. cool. Yeah. So what did you read? So I came up with a little different take. Good. Otherwise, Um, it would be really boring. Yes. And so I went with one genre and one specific book of poems. Awesome. So the book of poems that I chose was, is an old one, Mm -hmm. uh, T.S. Eliot's Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. And (laughs) I chose it because even though it's a really old volume of poetry, it Mm -hmm. has very... um, practical application to today because, and I didn't know this until Uh I did some research Uh that the, the Andrew Lloyd Webber Broadway play cats is actually based on this book of poetry. Right. And the, of course the, the movie, which Mm -hmm. was very, um, panned by many <laughs> critics, very yeah. controversial, um, that just came out like a month ago mm-hmm. of of the play Cats mm-hmm. was, you know, of course, also based on the play, which is based on the book. So <laughs> there's some contemporary tie-in mm-hmm. there. And Do you think many people realize that the musical was based on a poem? I, d- I don't think they did. No, mm. I... Th- I th- I mean, that was new information to me, but apparently Andrew Lloyd Webber was a fan of this book of poetry when he was a boy. Oh, interesting. He read these when he was a boy and just, it just stuck with him. And that's why he came (laughs) to write the the play. And, um, and then the guy who adapted the play into the movie, Tom Hooper, Mm -hmm. he was a big fan of the play when he was an eight-year-old boy, and that led him <laughs> to produce this this movie. Wow. So um, it that was pretty interesting to me. And I, in the research that I did, um, the woman who was interviewed in an article that was in the Guardian, um, if you have that mm-hmm. that app or get that newspaper. Um, She's the administrator of uh, T.S. Eliot's estate. Oh, okay. She opined that T.S. Eliot would have loved the play and would have loved the book, <laughs> uh, would the have movie. loved the, the movie, uh, because he was kind of an out there guy and he yeah. had a great sense of humor and he loved musical theater mm-hmm. and frequently went to see Broadway shows when he was in New York. Yeah. And, um, and he... Another thing that's kind of interesting about T.S. Eliot that I didn't know, I always thought he was British. He affected mm-hmm. being British, <laughs> like he played being British, but he grew up in the Midwest. So, oh, awesome. Um, I just thought that was a pretty funny that. little, yeah, he, he assumed or culturally appropriated uh, being British. Cultural if, if appreciation. You can, if you can do that. So the <laughs> the first poem in the book, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, the, the very first poem is called The Naming of Cats. Mm-hmm. And that is the second musical number in the movie and the play is taken it's exactly the same as this oh, really? it's almost like this poem Set put to music. to music so i'll just read a couple lines 
Uh, the naming of cats is a difficult matter. It isn't just one of your holiday games. You may think uh, at first I'm as mad as a hatter when I tell you a cat must have three different names. <laughs> first of all, there's the name of, that the family use daily, such as Peter, Augustus, Alonzo, or James, such as Victor or Jonathan, George or Bill Bailey, all of them sensible everyday names. <laughs> and then it goes on goes to on explain the, the different names. You know, yeah. he has to have a family name. He has to have a peculiar name and on and on. And <laughs> the second song in the play and in the movie is the naming of cats. And oh, that's awesome. It's So it really is explicitly pulling from the T.S. Eliot work. Exactly. Yeah, it so, was pretty funny. What I love about the edition that we used to consult for this podcast came from the library collection is I think it's illustrated by Edward Gorey, right? Is that yes, Edward Gorey? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, the illustrations are great. Yeah. Yeah, they're almost like that guy that does the... He, they remind me of the guy, I think he's in The New Yorker, and he'd always put his children's names somewhere in his mm. illustration. I can't recall. I'll have to look up his name. And, I know it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, I know exactly who yeah. you're talking about. Well, we'll look it up and we'll put it in the show notes. But, <laughs> sorry to um, distract you. Sorry, sorry, um, <laughs> illustrator guy whose name we can't remember. <laughs> but so that was the book that I mm-hmm. that I chose, and I was very proud of myself for deviating from my go-to Shel Silverstein. Which is <laughs> there's I, another who, po- we can talk Shel another time. We'll have to talk about him another time. But um, the genre of poetry that I chose um, again is is very relatable to right now because. I chose cowboy poetry. And for our listeners that have never heard of that before, it is a thing. Yeah, a big thing. And there's, yes, there's actually coming up in two weeks or just shy of two weeks. Well, or or just a week before this episode Oh, right. Yeah. From when we (laughs) recorded, it's two weeks, but it'll be just, it'll just have taken place when this episode airs, is the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Elko, Nevada. Yeah. And that is taking place this in 2020 from January 20th to February 1st. Um, It is um, a yearly festival of Mm -hmm. poetry and music. Yeah. Um, It's very popular. It's very well attended and... We're going to go one day. Yeah, we'll go. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to go. Check go. it out. But cowboy poetry is, it, it really is kind of an important genre of poetry yes, in America. Yes, and it's, and, you know, and it's been around for a really long time. Um, the poets who participate are in cowboy poetry, they all live in the rural West. Mm-hmm. Um, the genre has been dominated by men. Until recently, awesome. Uh, where now there are more women uh, mm-hmm. cowboy poets that are, um, you know, coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, awesome. And cowboy poetry provides opportunities to learn about creative solutions to current challenges in the rural West, um, and tell stories about what it was like to be alone on a horseback <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere yeah. for, you know, weeks and months at a time. Yeah. So it, it, like we were saying before, it not only talks about what is happening with cowboys today mm-hmm. in our society, but also the history of, mm-hmm. you know, what the life of a cowboy was like. So almost... Um 
kind of like Joy Harjo was alluding to is like an oral history or an oral storytelling tradition in poetry. Absolutely. So we first started to see cowboy poetry in about the 1880s. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that cowboy books were published Yeah, and, you know, really put out there. And of course it grew, Mm -hmm. you know, more people started writing them and participating. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times the poems took, uh, the form of song, mm-hmm. you know, of they course. have their guitars and yeah. whatnot. So, um, yeah, and it's it's very. Um, I think in this area where we live, it's a, a lot more um, not popular, but something people know about, know and appreciate, so, and yes. will turn up for. Yeah, exactly. So I picked a couple, and they're very long. There (laughs) are no short cowboy poems. Well, you have a lot of time sitting around the campfire in the open prairie. Yes, exactly. And the interesting thing is that as the the women Mm -hmm. started writing, their focus was not about like going on the cattle drives Mm -hmm. or being, um, you know, doing the work, but it Mm -hmm. was more focused on waiting. For their man to come home. The contemporary women? Even the contemporary wow. women. You know, it's more about the life of yeah. being on the ranch right. by yourself. Yeah. You yeah. know, so um, this is a poem by Marie W. Smith. I'm not going to read it all because mm-hmm. even the women write really long ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's called If... And it starts, if I hadn't become a cowboy's wife, I'd have never seen the glow of nightlights on the crusted drift of freshly fallen snow. I'd have never heard a barn owl cry outside my cabin door. I'd never have raised Rhode Island reds and lost all of them but four. So, and it goes on from there about, you know, this is what she does when her husband's not around, you know, she watches the snow and tends to the ranch tends to the ranch and the animals on there. And yeah. Um, and then from a man's point of view, a Mm -hmm. cowboy's point of view, this poem is called a range cow in winter and it's by Vern Mortensen. Mm -hmm. Have you listened still on a desert hill at the close of a bitter day when the orange sun in wispy clouds was set in a greenish haze? In a, white, in a cold white world of deepening drifts that cover the land like a pall, then the plaintive ball of a hungry cow is the loneliest sound of all. Oh, wow. And he goes That's on. That's really, to that tell really. About. It, evo- it evokes a, like you can hear the cow, yeah. right? You can see it and, and hear it yeah. and kind of almost feel what the cowboy is feeling. And, yeah, and him being kind of alone out there with all this these cows around him and you know what I like about this genre and what you've talked about it. I don't, I'm not that familiar with mm-hmm. it. Um, is that, you know, the kind of cowboy culture, the, the kind of history of it mm-hmm. all and, and, you know, being a ranch, a rancher, you know, right. whether you're the husband or the wife or, you know, on your own, it's all kind of, you know, portrayed as kind of hard bitten and tough and, you know, rough yeah. and tumble. But in reality, you know, people in this life are really creative and yeah. willing to express it, you know? And and I think, you know, back then too, before, 
I mean, I don't know if these guys now go out with their phones and can get a, <laughs> do I have a signal? Do I have a can signal? I, yeah. You know, go on the internet. I don't know if that happens, but you know, when they had all this time out there by themselves that they u- really used yeah. it in a creative, purposeful manner and, you know, then shared that with, yeah. um, you know, I think it shows a different side of what we would come to think of as pretty, you know, scrappy, yeah. you know, leather, yeah. face, quiet, quiet yeah, stoic and, yeah. you know, don't show their emotions. And, you know, and this was one way for them to kind of share what, what they're feeling as they're out there, yeah. you know. Doing I their job, it. I love so, it. I, I can't wait to explore that genre a little bit more. I think it's. I think it was really cool, and I. I really want to check out one of these poetry gatherings. There was. There is. I. Um, a colleague of mine, a, mm-hmm. another county superintendent. He's since retired, but uh, Jim Parsons from mm-hmm. Alpine County is a cowboy poet. Is he really? Yeah, and I haven't found any of his poems, but yeah, he was kind of. He was kind of famous around the California County Superintendent's group, you know, to read his poetry and awesome. Yeah, I think I believe he's living in Hawaii now. Oh, that's so, that's not yeah. cowboy country. There actually are quite a lot of cowboys in Hawaii because of all the ranches on uh, the Big right, Island. Right, so, someone's got to yeah, rustle all those pineapple. That, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, thank yeah. you for sharing that, Stacey. Thank you. It was really fun. It was fun to do a different, something so, that's was so different for me. And yeah, it's kind me. of piqued my interest to explore poetry a little more and not be afraid of it. Yeah. And I hope it piqued some interest of some of our listeners. Me too. I encourage you to, um, if you're at all interested in any of the poets that we talked about or the genres or just kind of reacquainting yourself with some interesting yeah. poetry, the library is a good place to start because there's mm-hmm. always these collections of poems right. that you can go and they're often very thematic. So come in and explore, get your library card. You know, Mono County Library's mm-hmm. got poetry in all seven locations. So check it out. Check it out. Great. Take a deep breath and we'll be right back. Oxygen, a colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved, suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast, a colorless, odorless culture-packed, nutritious podcasts considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners. We have arrived at the conversation, the C part of our podcast, and we're so excited today to have Joseph Taylor Jackson from Bodie with us today. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Taylor? I'm doing great. It's a little great. chilly. <laughs> <laughs> How much snow do y'all have there? Uh, right now on the ground, we have about four to five inches. Okay. Uh, yeah, so not too much. Not too much. Could be worse. How cold is it right now? Uh, at last check, it was 10 degrees. So it, wow, it's that's, chilly. Wow, that's chilly. So maybe we should describe or let Taylor describe a little bit more about where he's actually calling in from. Yes. Taylor, would you tell us about Bodie State Park? Yeah, so Bodie State Historic Park is a old ghost town. Uh, it's at almost 8,400 feet. It's in the Eastern Sierra. 
Uh, it's about an hour and 20 minutes north of Mammoth Lakes. Uh, it was established back in 1859 due to a huge gold boom. Uh, the town really didn't boom until 1877. Uh, and during that time period, there were six to 10,000 people that lived here in town. Wow. Yeah. So it's now entirely a ghost town. And, and, and yeah, that's that's just almost unfathomable to think that that many people yeah. can live there. That's kind of typical of mining towns, though, right? They kind of have a boom and bust. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and we fit right into that. I mean, most of the people who were here that were famous names tended to go to Tombstone whenever the boom kind mm -hmm. of ended. Right, so these people right. were jumping from town to town. So before we get a little bit more into that, Taylor, can you tell us and tell our listeners what? What was the adventure that brought you to Bodie? Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. So I applied for state parks after working as a lifeguard for LA County for almost seven years. So you're uh, a California person. I was, yeah. And I'd lived in Flagstaff for a while. My wife and I had traveled full time in a van climbing. So we'd spent a lot of time in Bishop and through Yosemite. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we were familiar with the area. Um, I originally went through as a lifeguard through state parks, and then I decided I didn't want to work at Huntington Beach. <laughs> and uh, when I went through the academy, this was the best-looking place that I could see, and my wife and I were very excited to come out here and kind of have a different sort of experience. Yeah, so from the beach to Bodie, that's like... 180 degrees different experience. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I, I worked at a ski resort for about six years before becoming a lifeguard. Okay. Um, so it, uh, we're very much mountain people. It just was a, a weird blip, I guess, in the scheme of things. That's incredible. And so were you, were you always interested in, you know, working for state parks as like as a kid or did just your wanting to be out, outdoors drive that? I think it was mostly just wanting to be outdoors. Uh, I really was trying to become a permanent lifeguard down in LA County, uh, but it was looking like it'd be a five or six year wait. Mm. And uh, they posted the job flyer for state parks. And so I kind of just threw my name in the hat and uh, one thing after another, and all of a sudden I got the job. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, I've always done outdoor activities as work. I've never really worked in an office. Uh, so coming here w was basically perfect for me. So becoming a ranger, rangers are, you do actually have to go through an academy, right? You're, you're, you're in one aspect of your role as law enforcement, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So we do go through a full police academy. Ours is actually almost about three months longer than a typical police academy. Uh, we have a bunch more training in uh, interpretation as well as medical training. Uh, we, we also do different systems um, in law enforcement as well. So we have full jurisdiction across the state, just like California Highway Patrol. Wow. So given that you are now working in a ghost town, and I don't know if that's an official <laughs> title or um, I would imagine the, you know, summer, you know, you're much more, there's much more law to enforce in the summer than in the winter. Absolutely. And, you know, just because state parks has 280 different state parks across the state, uh, the, Differences in the job description is very varied, as you can imagine. Right. Um, here, for the most part, we're not dealing with DUIs. We're not dealing with domestic violence. Uh, for the most part, we're protecting resources. Um, mm -hmm. And that's making sure people aren't stealing our artifacts, aren't trying to do any sort of, uh, I guess, vandalism to any of the structures, um, as well as making sure that people don't go off-roading off of the roads in the area, uh, things like that. 
So um, just again, for our listeners' sake, um, Bodhi, and I'll turn it back over to you, Taylor, to pick up the description. When I first went to Bodhi, I was like seven years old. <laughs> there, I don't even know if there was the guard station there. There was no parking, really official parking lot and all that kind of stuff. They did kind of encourage you not to pick stuff up, like don't pick up the square nails and leave the park, you know, that kind of stuff. This is many decades later. We went up last uh, summer and like there's a beautiful facility there. There's restrooms there now that make it, it's a little bit, I think, more accessible to people than it has been in the past, but it's still kind of really remote and there are a lot of structures there. Can you describe what it looks like to people who are listening? Yeah, absolutely. So to get to Bodhi, uh, the best way is to kind of take a 13 mile long winding road from 395 uh, to the east, um, as you kind of go through this canyon, you eventually hit a dirt road that tends to be not super well maintained. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we experienced that. Yeah, yeah, most people do. That's probably your number one complaint. Um, <laughs> and so you finally crest the hill and you just see this enormous town in the middle of this bowl. Uh, most people, when they think of Bodhi or think of ghost towns, really, uh, they think of only having three or four buildings. And we have 180 structures still here in town. Um, yeah, so this is less than 10% of what was here. We lost most of the rest of fires. But wow. as you kind of wind your way into the town itself, the road curves to the left to the parking lot. But it gives you this overview of the entire town as well as the mm -hmm. stamp mill where a lot of the ore was processed. And you can see all of the old mines across the bluff. Uh, you can just see the different shades of dirt from the tailings that they were processing during that time period. Yeah. Uh, and, so. and is it the responsibility of the rangers like yourself to give tours to the people who come or are those is that a different responsibility? So, it's it's mixed. Um, I, I'm very comfortable giving tours. I, that's probably my favorite part of my job. Um, <laughs> but we also have an interpreter uh, who's full time here. Uh, they tend to create programs, and then our park aides as well do a lot of our interpretation in the summer. So they lead stamp mill tours as well as history talks, and then mm. they kind of do roving interpretation where they just ask people if they want to know anything, uh, if they have any questions, and just kind of make a presence known. Uh, just mm. because there are no signs here in the town. Um, there's no uh, board that kind of tells you what you're seeing unless you get our brochure. And that's just mm. to keep the view shed of the town as historically accurate as we possibly can. So wow. having those people out there to talk to is really pivotal for the user experience. Sure. Do you do you have a favorite building or, you know, area yeah. of, the, of the park that... that Absolutely. Like, yeah. So it's hard because I, I swear I see something new every single day. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, and so you're constantly learning more about the park and you're learning more about the people who are here. Uh, and for me, I, I was really obsessed with the Sam Leone bar for a really long time. And I think that's a huge draw for most people. There's mm -hmm. a large roulette table in the center of the room right. with, with the poker chips still on the table. You can see where they've fallen from the multiple earthquakes that we've had, wow. as well as just the building shifting itself. Um, and that really used to touch me, but as things go on, I'm getting more and more into, uh, the actual houses of where the people live and mm -hmm. seeing the artifacts of what they use during that time period. So, because cool. people left stuff behind, right? Like they would, they would kind of leave town quickly if they heard of another, you know, there's something going on in Arizona or whatever. 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, and for the most part, uh, the artifacts that we still have today weren't from those le- uh, those time periods. Mm. Uh, they were actually more so from the 1930s after a large oh. fire. Yeah, and so you kind of have to think of how you would move today, right? If I was going to leave my house here, chances are I'm not going to take my bed. I, I'm kind of over it anyway. I kind of want a new one. <laughs> and it's going to cost me a lot of money to move it. And so for these people who were so broke when they were leaving here, the incentive of taking these items with them was very, very low. Uh, They tend to be sneaking away in the middle of the night because they might have some debts that were outstanding. Um, Yeah. I mean, it was kind of shady. And so, I mean, just like today, you're not going to transport everything whenever you go to move. And so most of our artifacts here were the heavier things that they were unable to take with them. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. And so that also ties into another phrase I learned when I was up there, and that was arrested decay. Can you talk about what that is and why it's important? Yeah, absolutely. So whenever the state acquired the property in 1962, uh, the Kane family, who had been purchasing up all the lots as people left, had the idea of keeping this area as intact as possible. They'd even hired an armed guard for close to 20 years before the state took it over. And that was just to try and... uh, encourage people not to take anything and not to loot the area. Uh, So whenever we got possession of it, the family basically didn't want us to restore the town. They didn't want this to turn into a Disneyland style uh, Mm. amusement park. And so the state has done the best of its ability to keep the buildings in the exact same state as they were whenever we possessed them. So that means that we don't paint anything. Uh, Mm. We don't do unnecessary repairs to make it look like it's brand new. Instead, we stabilize the buildings to the best of our abilities. Now we do fix roofs because if you lose your roof, you're going to lose your foundation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, We will also fix windows uh, just because so many artifacts that have been left inside these buildings haven't been touched for close to 60 years. Uh, And the second that they get moved or the wind, you know, is damaging them. Now we lose all of our artifacts, but we do use restore glass from Germany. So it's handmade. It still has that lead and those weird, bubbles in it. Oh, wow. um, yeah and our maintenance staff uses the same techniques that they used back in the 1800s to create these windows so yeah anytime that we do any work we actually look at the original uh photographs from whenever we got the park in 1962 mm-hmm. just to make sure that the repairs are consistent with what the town used to look like so can you describe a little bit going into the history of Bodie itself it was a pretty lawless place for quite some time, right? Yeah. So, so there was the five-year period that was pretty intense. And so that was from 1877 until 1882. Um, and again, that's when our boom with the, you know, almost 10,000 people here. Uh, now, there were constables who were essentially sheriffs in, during that time period who were here. And then the courthouse in Bridgeport would be the ones who was processing any of the uh, Wild West type outlaws. Um <laughs> But from the news stories of the day, it sounded like there were shootings nearly every single day. Uh, Yeah. So you have to think that these miners and the mill workers were making about $4 a day, which was double the amount that people were making in San Francisco during the same time period. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So they were very, very wealthy. And so they're paying about $2 a day for their food and their bedding and their lodging. And so with that other $2, you could send that home to your family. But in reality, most of these guys are spending that on alcohol. Um, Bodie was known as a uh, quick-to-shoot town, but everyone was terrible shots. There's multiple, <laughs> story, <yeah. laughs> There's multiple stories of people shooting at point-blank range, you know, full revolvers of six rounds and missing every single shot. <laughs> so you can tell the alcohol is definitely for 
<laughs> it's like a bad Hollywood sixties Western, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I still go through the buildings looking for like some of these old bullet holes. Like I've gone to Tombstone <laughs> multiple times uh -huh. and you know, they have the area where Wyatt Earp shot up uh, past the saloon and that's just not here, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think a lot of that's just due to the vast majority of the saloons and the brothels all burning down in the 1892 fire. Right. Wow. So that, that 1892 fire, did that, that did, was that the impetus for the town becoming a ghost town? Um, not so much. So we've had two large fires, unfortunately. Uh, mm -hmm. That first 1892 fire really wiped out the saloons, the brothels, all the really cool stuff you want to see. <laughs> and uh, that made in the south of the town, the good people on the south side, I guess, uh, really stoked because most of the people in the north then left. So all of your outlaws, the prostitutes, you know, kind of mm -hmm. left after that time period. Uh, However, okay. mining was still going on. So we had a population of about 1,000 to 2,000 people all the way up until that 1932 fire. Um, okay. the, the 1892 fire was actually a grease fire that was started in the back of a kitchen. Wow. See, it happens everywhere. Yeah. yeah unfortunately. Did, when, when did mining actually end in Bodhi? So mining continued all the way until 1942. Uh, at that point, they weren't technically mining. They were actually just going through tailings piles and using the cyanide process to extract mm -hmm. the remaining uh, gold that was in the already processed ore that had gone through amalgamation. Mm -hmm. So right there on site, like cyanide, so is the, is the ground polluted up near those tailings and stuff? So uh, we were really concerned about that. We actually had the EPA come out in 2008 and do a full <laughs> survey of the town. So they took over 150 samples, I want to say. I'm going off the top of my head. I apologize yeah. if those numbers are right. right. Um, and uh, they looked through, and actually our ground soil isn't contaminated. Now, there are specific areas in some buildings that are very, very toxic, um, particularly where they were using mercury in order to uh, do amalgamation. But other than those rooms, they basically said the rest of the town was safe. Wow. Well, that's must be reassuring. <laughs> reassuring for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. so, absolutely. So one of the things, and I, and I had mentioned this to you when I first reached out, one of the things that um, intrigues us about interviewing you, Taylor, is that you're there in the winter. Um, and, the, and the park is still open in the winter, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So the park is open year-round, no matter what the day is. The problem is just getting here. <laughs> so it's like put on your cross-country skis and <laughs> Go for the take for months. a long hike. Exactly. And people do do that. They end up camping. Uh, they can't camp in the town, but they do camp on the outside areas. It's all BLM land surrounding us. So that's totally fine. Um, and people do bring snowmobiles up as well. Uh, as you guys know, Bridgeport's a huge snowmobiling community, mm -hmm. especially yeah. with 108 just north of us, yeah. is, along with Mammoth. And so it's not quite the same quality of snow or terrain as in those other areas, seeing as you have mm -hmm. to stay on the roads. But uh, people, if they're looking for a different type of adventure, do make their way out here just to kind of see something. Wow. Um, for us living in town, getting in and out is mostly either done by snowcat or is done by a snowmobile. So it, it's Whoa. it's kind of an intense experience. So and, you have uh, a snowcat you can drive? Yes. Yeah, we have That's two. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty interesting. We, we have a piston bully and we have a tucker. Um, and we actually tend to use the 1980s tucker over the brand new piston bully. <laughs> Sounds like fun. So how many people are out there in the winter? It's not just you, right? No, no. So there's five of us. So there's myself, another ranger, and then we have two maintenance staffs, uh, and then my significant other. Um, 
So, uh, and right now, seeing as there's only two maintenance staff, we all kind of tend to pitch in whenever there's big mm-hmm. jobs that need to be done. If we need to pick something up, uh, last winter, for example, the, uh, roof on the schoolhouse actually blew off in a large storm oh um, and so we all kind of were all hands on deck to get up there and secure that just to try and protect the building to the best of our wow. ability and did that get all repaired yeah yeah so it, it, we we did as much as we could in the middle of the storm um, and then following that we were able to re-secure the it, it's actually a tin roof so it was far easier than you would imagine actually roofing a, a wooden roof um, and so we, we got that all good to go and then in the summer our archaeologist came out and uh assessed the damage and everything like that well i'm glad that was fixed because that's my favorite building, building. <laughs> okay there you go as it would be so thank Having you office of ed here yes um, yeah absolutely so, uh oh, i should ask that question right i'm the librarian is there yeah. was there ever a library in Bodie? You know? okay so i i don't know of any structure that was officially a library um i do know that the school teachers would like lend out books to the kids um, I, I know that's not quite the same thing, but we do have several <laughs> written like uh, testimonies of the teachers who lived here and kind of taught for multiple years. I mean, because you have to think that you had from kindergarten all the way up to secondary school in that single building, right? Right. You know, and, and yeah. there was over 600 kids enrolled during the boom years and there's yeah. two wow. teachers. I mean, so how do you handle something like that? Like, I, I can't even imagine. I, I so, can't either, but I would love, <laughs> I would have loved to have like had the opportunity <laughs> I think the idea of it's so cool I, I feel like it'd definitely be like hurting kittens it, it sounds yeah. like a lot oh, of recess yeah. time right exactly. <laughs> yeah talk about differentiated instruction it right. gives it a whole new meaning and keep them away from the gunshots <laughs> yeah. exactly right. exactly yes. so what is a typical day like in the middle of winter for any of you who are working out there so uh I, I, this might sound nerdy, but we're very much into the weather up here. Um, we're <laughs> one of the coldest places in the continental United States pretty mm-hmm. consistently. Uh, and so we have a National Weather Service weather station here. Uh, and so every day we have to check that at 8 o'clock. Uh, we get the high, the low, and then the current temperature for the day. If there was any moisture accumulation over the day, we uh, go over, we take our rain collector, we have to melt down the snow, figure out how much the actual moisture inside of that was, and then we also have a snowboard that we have to record the actual snow depth. Now, it's only a 15-minute thing, but you have to do it every day. No matter if it's negative 20, if it's 40 degrees, (laughs) it has to be done. So, uh, and and it's really pivotal because there's only about 90 sites in the Eastern Sierra, and so then they use those to create those point forecasts that we all uh, kind of use to figure out how much snow we're going to get. Um, so we do that every day. Uh, currently I'm also in charge of film permits as well as hiring. So we're kind of fielding hiring stuff right now, just trying to get ready for a summer season. Right. Uh, I'm working on a film permit for a Dracula film coming up here. We'll see if that actually pans out or not. (laughs) Are there, are there quite a lot of movies that are filmed up there? Yeah. So we we actually had 40 different shoots this past year. Wow. Yeah, and so I, I work with all of those producers uh, just to make sure that the permitting process goes correctly, what our expectations are versus what their expectations are, and then we try and kind of find that middle ground, making sure that the artifacts are the most important thing. Wow. That's cool. So they no longer just build their own little ghost towns in the middle of nowhere. They just come to Bodie. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, we've never actually had a AAA film here. I know Westworld uh, okay. actually came out here and scouted. Uh, but as you could imagine with most uh, productions of that size, they really want to shut down the entire park. Right. Oh, um, yeah. And that's just not going to fly, especially when we have, you know, a quarter of our visitors are European. 
Uh, and if they're coming out here and this is their one chance to see Bodhi mm-hmm. and they've heard about it their whole life and then it's yeah. closed for a movie mm-hmm. shoot, like that's not acceptable. Right. Um, our, our mission as a state park, you know, is to try and make sure our visitors enjoy their outdoor experiences. Uh, and so having that closure just for commercial use isn't really in our uh, plan, isn't in our idea of our mission. Right. That's good. So a quarter of your visitors are Europeans. You really do get a lot of people from around the world. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we try and have multiple translations of our brochure just so they have uh, just as much interpretation as we would be able to provide them just walking around. Um, we're in almost every tour book, just like most of uh, Mono County. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. with Visit Mammoth and Mono Lake, Mono County Tourism, I mm-hmm. mean, they're bringing in these tour guides and we work uh, pretty extensively with them to make sure that those tour guides are able to come up here and get those same experiences. Um, just because we've been featured in so many things in uh, Europe. Um, we've done, we, I think we did three different news shoots, uh, this year for European wow. television. Wow. So, so Taylor, if our listeners haven't been up to Bodie and want to come visit, where can they get some more information about how to get to you and what they're going to find up there? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest way is just Google Bodie State Historic Park and then go to the parks website. There's several others like Bodie History and all these others. They're not actually state websites. Um, the state website's updated by me, so I, I know that the information is current. Um, basically, uh, we're open from 9 to 4 in the winter and then 9 to 6 in the summer, just depending on daylight savings time. That's normally our switch. Um, and then our road conditions are also posted there. Uh, yeah. If you would rather not read on the Internet and you'd rather call our voice message or uh, a ranger should be manning the phone most times. Um, and they'll be able to give you information about the road conditions as well as uh, what the current weather is at the town. Unfortunately, awesome. not God. We can't predict what's going to happen. Uh, so, <laughs> and it is the Eastern Sierra. Yeah. So what's and going it to is. Can change every right. minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I can't let you go without asking this question. Uh, it's a ghost town. So have you seen ghosts? Okay, so that's probably our number one question. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, you're good. Uh, and, and I gotta say. Uh, in my experience, all the people who have seen ghosts here are exactly the type of people you thought would have seen ghosts. <laughs> That's a diplomatic answer. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm not opposed to it by any means. Um, I've always been open to experiences, but I've never experienced anything that yeah. was atypical. Uh, there have been other people, and I don't want to share their stories because that's right. theirs, but they're also the type of people who saw a UFO land in the middle of town. So mm. I don't want to say one way or the other. Okay. <laughs> Good answer. I spent many years working in New York City, so I know <laughs> the ilk of which you speak. So, um, Taylor, one of the questions we ask each of our guests is, um, what are you reading now, or what book would you recommend? Okay, so currently I'm reading the Dagger and Coin series. I'm really into mm-hmm. fantasy. Uh, it's by mm-hmm. Daniel Abram. It's a five-book series. It's basically a small world that has 12 different races that were created by dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's about banking. It's about accounting. It's about pirates. I don't know. It's great. Everything you want in a fantasy series. Fantasy exactly. Series exactly. <laughs> but you like that. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I, I just finished my reread of The Wheel of Time, trying to get ready for the new TV show coming out. Oh, so. right. Wow. Oh, so, so this series was made into a television series? No, no, this oh. one is not. Uh, I just, Wheel of Time is a big... Uh, series basically, but Amazon Prime picked it up. It's supposed to be coming okay. out next year or so. Yeah, right. it's a series that's been around a long time. Yeah, but, but um, 
so one last question related to that do you spend a lot of time reading up there or is i do yeah it's it's by far my favorite thing to do it's either that or skiing or running i i I have a problem (laughs) i think all those things are great (laughs) i wish i could spend all my time doing those things too yeah you know and we make it sound like it's so rustic up here we still have wi-fi we still have netflix i mean that's probably the number two question we get is just people asking what do you do after you know, <laughs> what do you do here there's nothing to do and you know i i look at them and i'm like okay what do you do whenever you go home at night right like i, I cook dinner with my wife like we we eat and then i watch netflix yeah, just exactly. like you right. do just like yeah. everyone else does you're not hitting that roulette wheel down there yeah. unfortunately not i would love to one of these days <laughs> taylor thank you for uh, spending time with us today and, and telling us a little bit more about Bodie and Bodie and winter we hope Absolutely. to come visit you soon. Yeah, please come up anytime. Uh, nine to four again right now. But uh, hopefully the roads will open up sooner rather than later. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us with another episode of Oxygen Star, the adventure books and conversation from 11,000 feet, or in this case, 8,400 feet, from one of the coldest places in the continental United States. Um, you can find us on our website, oxygenstarpodcast.com, our Instagram account, O2Star and Facebook. We encourage you to email us, let us know what you think, or if you have any questions or recommendations of books you would like to read in the dead of winter in a ghost town, let us know. Thank you. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License. 